Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. We come to Psalm 17 this morning as we're continuing to go through the first book of Psalms, Psalm 1 to 41. Of course, last week we, we looked at Psalm 16 that is uh, explicitly stated to be fulfilled uh, in Christ and in, and in His resurrection. We saw that these are ultimately, indeed, the words of Christ spoken through David the prophet speaking of the resurrection and the fact that God would not let His Holy One see corruption. And as we come to Psalm 17 this morning, the same theme continues. We are also going to see the Christ, the Messiah, speaking and speaking about the resurrection. I hope that when we get done with it, you will be uh, marveled by the fact that you had never seen so much resurrection in the book of Psalms before. Uh, but it is there. Uh, but we have, to, we have to heed the word and see uh, indeed what the psalmist is saying. So we'll begin together by reading Psalm 17, and uh, we'll read the whole psalm uh, together. Of course, this is uh, titled as a prayer of David. David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a prophet, and he says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From Your presence, let my vindication come. Let Your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and You will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at Your right hand. Keep me as the apple of Your eye. Hide me in the shadows from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront Him. Subdue Him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by Your sword. From men by Your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, Your servant longed for justice to be done on his behalf. He had enemies who were unjustly assaulting him, maligning him, seeking to devour him like lions, to murder him. And he cried out to You that You would save him and deliver Him in the same ways that You had saved Your people in the past. In the same miraculous way that You had redeemed Your people Israel from death when they were in bondage 
in Egypt. He cried out to you to act again in a marvelous way and to deliver His soul from death itself. And you answered His prayer. We see you answering His prayer ultimately when you caused your Son, Jesus Christ, to rise from the dead. When you made Him who was sleeping in the grave to awake and to enter into your presence. You vindicated all of His claims to be the Son of God and to be the rightful King. And in vindicating Him, you exalted Him at your right hand. You showed yourself to be a faithful God who delivers those who take refuge in You. And like Jesus, Lord, we are those who find our refuge in You. We find our refuge in Christ Himself. Our deliverance from sin, our deliverance from our enemies, ultimately comes through Him. And so like Him as well, Lord, we cry out. We long for the day when You will give us victory. You will vindicate us over sin, over death, and over our enemies. So as we heed the words of this psalm this morning, I pray, Lord, that You would help us both to see Christ in this psalm and to see the promise that has been extended to those who are in Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by thinking together about something that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, after Paul gives instructions for the qualifications for elders and for deacons, he states that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is the church, in other words, that has the unique task of upholding the truth, of guarding the truth, of proclaiming the truth. Which, of course, assumes that the church, if it is a church, possesses the truth. And possesses it most especially in the Word of God. But after Paul says this, he then quotes a very early confessional statement that summarized the truth of the Gospel and the work of Christ. If the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, he then goes on to say, this is a summary of what that truth is. And I want you to listen to what he says here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, referring to Jesus, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This confession here speaks, first of all, about Jesus' incarnation. He was manifested. He was revealed in the flesh. The Son of God entered into the world. The Word became flesh. But then the very next line speaks of His resurrection. Again, it's a summary of the work of Christ. It speaks of His resurrection followed by His resurrection appearances that even angels saw and bore witness to. If you remember from the Gospels, it's angels who are present at His tomb. It is angels who are present when He ascends uh, to God on the clouds of heaven. But notice that when He speaks of the resurrection, He doesn't use the language of rising or being raised. He says that Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Or another way we can say, He was justified by the Spirit. But not in the sense that we are justified from our sins. It's justified in the sense that He was vindicated. 
This is, of course, judicial language mixed together with the doctrine of the resurrection. That's the point at which the confession is speaking about Christ's work at His resurrection. In other words, Paul is saying that when Jesus was resurrected, this was in some sense a divine vindication of Him by the Spirit. It was God's own testimony about Jesus that Jesus was indeed who He claimed to be. That He was the Son of God. He was the promised Messiah. This is similar, in fact, to what we read a moment ago in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, when Paul says there of Jesus that He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying here that Jesus became the Son of God. There wasn't some change in His being, but at His resurrection and by the resurrection, God bore witness that Jesus who proclaimed Himself to be the Son of God, who proclaimed Himself to be the promised Messiah, was indeed the promised Messiah and Son. So, there is a connection here in the minds of the biblical authors and the minds of the apostles between the resurrection of Christ and the vindication of Christ. It is the resurrection that vindicates all of His claims. It shows Him to be who He claimed He was. It justifies all of His preaching. It justifies the truthfulness of His Gospel message. It justifies His claim to the throne. And it does so over and against all of the enemies He had who were doubting Him, who were despising Him, blaspheming Him, and who ultimately rejected Him as a fraud. God vindicated Jesus over them when He raised Him from the dead. And I raise this matter first because in our psalm this morning, the same connection is being made. This is a psalm where the psalmist, who is of course most immediately David, but as we've seen before, ultimately Christ, is petitioning God for justice. He's crying out to God for justice. He's praying to the Lord and he's bringing a legal case before him. He is an innocent party who is being unjustly maligned and persecuted. He has enemies who are pursuing him, and he's appealing to the Lord as judge to vindicate him and to prove him to be in the right over against these enemies. He says again in verses 1 to 2, if you look with me there, he says, Here, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. I'm innocent. From Your presence, let my vindication come. Let Your eyes behold the right. And as the psalm continues, the Lord's anointed King who is speaking and who is otherwise, of course, is known as the Messiah. Right? You ever hear the word Messiah? That's just what it means. The anointed one. The anointed King. This anointed King, this Messiah, goes on to present His case to the Lord. To present the reasons why He should be vindicated and His enemies judged. And ultimately, the psalm culminates in his confidence that the Lord will indeed vindicate him and will do so 
through a resurrection. This is a psalm, in other words, that is most especially about making the point that the Messiah, the King, is vindicated through resurrection. And I want to unpack this idea for you this morning in four parts. First, we're going to consider the Messiah's appeal to His righteousness. And again, I want to just clarify that whenever I'm referring to the Messiah here, I am referring both immediately to David as the inspired author, the prophet who's writing and speaking, but also most especially and ultimately about Jesus, the one whom these psalms are all about. Right? So it, it, it's kind of difficult. We've got to keep these things in our mind. But you've got David, who is the author, but he is speaking about Christ. And that's what I'm referring to when I'm talking about the Messiah. So first, we'll look at the Messiah's appeal to His righteousness. Second, we'll see the Messiah's cry for protection. Third, the Messiah's judgment of His enemies. And then last of all, the Messiah's certainty of vindication. So let's consider first, for a moment, the Messiah's appeal to His righteousness. This is seen particularly in verses 3 to 5. The Messiah here speaks of God trying and testing Him. Like a fire that's burning away all the impurities of gold, God has brought affliction to His servant to reveal what is in Him. In the same way that He had tested Abraham to see and to reveal the faith that he had in God, so also now is the Messiah being tested. He is facing affliction. But in confidence, he's saying that the testing has proved him blameless. It has shown him to be in the right. There is nothing that is within him that is worthy of condemnation. He says that when he is tested, nothing can be found in him and that his mouth will not transgress. He says in verse 4 that he has avoided the ways of the violent. And there's a sense, of course, in which David could truly say this about himself as it was often the case that the afflictions that he faced from his enemies were frequently undeserved. He was an innocent man being persecuted. But of course, we also know that David was not a sinless man. We know that he has some incredible falls and some horrific sins that he commits, some violent sins that he commits, particularly in the murder of Uriah. And so ultimately, these words are not fulfilled in David, but they point us to the One who was truly righteous in Himself, namely, Jesus. And notice what he says is the means by which the Messiah avoids committing sin. This is, this is I think, important for us having been freed from sins this is important for us to see how we can walk in faithfulness in the ways of Christ. So notice again he says in verse 4 again, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. Sin is avoided. It is fought against and it is conquered ultimately by the Word of God. It's as Psalm 119 verse 9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. We know of course from the Gospels that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, how, how does He fight against those temptations given or sent directly to Him from 
Satan. Well, he appeals to the Word. He's countering every temptation by appealing to the Word that is true over against the lies of the serpent. He's doing the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden where they listened to the words of the serpent. And the Messiah here, Christ in the wilderness, is listening rather to the words of God. This was Jesus' weapon of warfare. And therefore, if we are going to follow in His example in fighting and conquering sin, we too must get the Word of God in us. We must devour it. We must meditate upon it. We must recall it in the midst of spiritual warfare. There can be no victory over sin if there is no Word of God within you. And so you have to take it. You have to eat it. You have to read it. You submit yourself to it. If you go out day after day into the world, week after week, without having touched or listened to or heard at all anything from the Word of God, you are like a man going into a fierce battle without a single weapon. You're not going to win. There's going to be no victory at all. And so what do you have to do? You have to take the Word given to you, read it, memorize it, get it into you. We go back all the way to Psalm 1. Blessed is that man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. This was Christ's chosen means of spiritual warfare. This is how He wins, and so in the same way, those who follow Him must take up the sword of the Spirit likewise. Christ did so. He made His way perfect before God. And therefore, in the psalm, He is appealing to His own righteousness before God. His innocence before God so that God will act on His behalf. But second, we not only see the Messiah appealing to His righteousness, we also see the Messiah's cry for protection. In light of His righteousness, in light of the fact that He is innocent, He prays to God that He would both see the injustices being done to Him, the slander being heaved at Him, and that God would act against all of those persecutions on His behalf. In verse 6, for example, He calls upon God to hear His words. But then in verse 7, notice His petition takes a decidedly covenantal turn. He points here to God's character as a covenant-keeping God. And He calls upon God to act in powerful, miraculous ways in keeping with His covenant promises and character. He says again in verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love. Or another way we could bring this out. Calls your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness to be miraculously Seen. That's the idea of the word wondrously show there, show there. Work a miracle. Do something powerful. Do something with much grandeur. Do a wonder, O God, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. He is here not praying for God's providential hand to deliver him. He's not, in other words, just wanting the Lord to use the, the regular means of creation. The regular means of His governance. He, he's not just wanting God to turn the hearts of kings wherever He wants them so that the, the situations now play themselves out so that He can be delivered. No, He's, he's calling for something more. He's calling for a miracle 
for a wonder to be done. He's pleading for God to work, in fact, an Exodus-like miracle. The Exodus was, of course, for the Israelite, what the cross and the resurrection is for the Christian. It was the supreme work of God's salvation for His people. All of the Israelite festivals, all of their their worship, all of their laws, their whole covenant, their whole society was oriented around this great work of salvation that God had done in the days of the Exodus. Like we do in the Lord's Supper, the Israelites did in the Passover. They looked back to the day when God saved His people. He very literally saved them from death. You'll remember, they were having their children being slaughtered because of the wicked intentions of Pharaoh. They were were in bondage. They were very literally captive to the grave. And God delivered them. And in the Passover, they would look back and they would remember that great day of salvation. But also, just like we do in the Lord's Supper, the Israelite didn't just look back to what God had done in the past. They also looked forward to what God would do again. They were looking forward to a new and an even greater exodus to come. One that would ultimately center around the Messiah and one that would far surpass the first one. The prophets, in fact, often spoke of this very thing. Jeremiah, for example, in chapter 16 of Jeremiah, he said that the days are coming when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of all the countries where He had driven them. This is a new exodus. Their own law had indicted them, had told them that they would break the law, that they would be kicked out of the land, they would come under judgment just like the Canaanites had. But it also testified to a future day to come when God would bring back all of the scattered of Israel, all of the scattered among the nations, and He would bring them to Himself in His kingdom with the Messiah being the centerpiece of that day of salvation. And the Messiah here in our psalm is thinking in the very same way. He's calling on God to act miraculously. To save Him with a wonder. And He has in mind exactly how God miraculously saved Israel in the Exodus. We read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses that does indeed indict the sin, uh, or indict Israel for their sin throughout uh, the wilderness generation. We read in Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 to 11, that God speaks here of caring for Israel while they were in the wilderness and keeping them as the apple of His eye and spreading out His wings like an eagle protecting His nest. And here, the Messiah is saying the same thing. He's saying, do that for Me. Act accordingly. Act on My behalf in that way. Notice with me in verses 8-9 to what He says. Keep me, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. In other words, what you did for the whole nation of Israel in the Exodus, how you surrounded them, how you protected them like an eagle with her wings protecting her young 
Do that for me, an individual. Save me with that Exodus-like power. And so this cry here for protection is a cry for God to show the mightiness of His power in salvation. Then thirdly, we also see the Messiah's judgment of His enemies. His assessment, if you you will, uh, of His enemies. As He makes His case before God, He describes why His enemies deserved to be judged. And He vindicated. Why they are like the wicked nations during the wilderness generation. Why they're like the kingdoms of Heshbon and Bashan and King Sihon and King Og who warred against Israel in the wilderness and whom God protected His people from. He's describing why they are like these very ungodly nations. We see here His own assessment of them and His legal case and indictment against them. And one of the things that He says about them has to do with the nature of their hearts. He he sees what's within them. the, The inward nature of their hearts. And when He looks within them, what He sees is something that is as cold as ice. There is no feeling within them at all. He says, if you look at me at verse 10, He says, they close their hearts to pity. Literally, the text says they, they close or they shut their fat portions. Their fat portions. Now, of course, if you think about Old Testament categories here, the fat portions of a sacrificial animal were, of course, the best part of the animal. Even today, right? You get a cut of meat. You want to make sure if you're going to cook that nice steak that it's got plenty of fat portions in it. It's got all that beautiful marbling in it so that it just melts in your mouth, right? That's what a good chef will tell you, that fat is flavor. The fat portions were the best part of the animal. And that's what's being referred to here. The best part of a man. The the fat portions of a man is what the psalmist is referring to. Uh, But there's an ironic twist, right? This is at least supposed to be what or what is supposed to be uh, the best parts of a man. His his heart, his affections, his mind, the, the, the seat of all of his decisions. But the problem is that with the wicked, even what is best in him is closed off. It's shut off. There's no access to it. There's no feeling within it. It is fat in the worst sense of the word. The parts on your body that have the most fat, of course, have the least amount of feeling. You can pinch a part of you that has no fat and you may you, you may feel like there's a sharp knife that, that, that's jabbing you, but you pinch another part of your body that's full of fat, and you may not even know that you got pinched. There's no feeling when you're covered in this. And this is the, the imagery that the psalmist is using. This is the case for the wicked. Their, their inward parts, their, their hearts have become fattened with sin. And therefore, they have no love. They have no concern. They have no pity on the people that they're harming. And they certainly have no concern at all for the Messiah, for God's King. Psalm 119, verse 70 speaks of the very same thing when it says of the wicked that their heart is unfeeling like fat. There is no sensitivity to the things of God. There's no real concern for righteousness. And so everything that comes out of their mouth is, is a product of that. It's, it's full of, of pride and arrogance and rebellion. Verse 11 then speaks further about how the wicked utterly despise the Messiah and His people. It says, they have surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to 
the ground. Maybe you can understand the, the imagery here. Perhaps you've been in a situation before when you're, you're in a room and you know that everyone who's in the room despises you. <laughs> you don't have to talk to them. You don't have to hear them say anything against you. You hear them by what you see in their eyes. It's their eyes that are murdering you. It's their eyes that are looking at you with utter disdain. That's what's being described here. You can see the wicked slaughtering the Messiah. Slaughtering His people with their eyes. They are setting their eyes, He says, to cast us to the ground. They are like predatory lions who are just waiting for their prey to come and then they will seize them. And indeed, we saw this, of course, in Jesus' own life and ministry. We often read right, in the Gospels about how Jesus' enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees especially, plotted together in order to arrest Him by stealth and to kill Him. Right? When they, when they looked at Christ with their eyes, they murdered Him long before a hand was ever laid upon Him. And that's what's going on here in the psalm. These enemies are assaulting a man who has committed no crimes, no evil, no sin, and yet they want to destroy Him. Moreover, another judgment that we find against the wicked here is that they are men who find all of their loves, all of their desires, all of their longing is rooted in this world and in this world only. They have no hopes to be with God. They are not as Abraham was looking forward to that city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. There's no New Jerusalem on their radar. They're not looking forward to a restored creation. What this world brings, what it has to offer, that's all they want. all they're satisfied with and nothing more. And this cry for the Lord to arise the Messiah calls on God to deliver him from these men of the world whose portion is in this life. And he says further that God will often grant what this life offers to the wicked. We see that in, in various places in the Psalms and in, in Proverbs. And, and it's the same thing here. He says, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Now, of course, there's no problem with children. That is a command from the Lord to be fruitful and multiply. Children are good. It's a good and wise thing to be able to leave an inheritance to your children. That's wisdom found all throughout Proverbs. This is not an indictment here against having children or leaving to them an inheritance. The problem is that this is all the wicked want. This is all that they're satisfied in. They are, in a very real sense, and to quote one of our most eminent modern day theologians, they are those who have their best life now. And that's it. Everything that can, that can be offered to them now is what they long for. And so it may be the case that God fills them with what this life gives. But in the end, the only thing they will know for all eternity is judgment. The one that they warred against. The one they rebelled against. The Messiah they despised will be exalted over them and they will be cast down to the ground. Which leads us lastly to the Messiah's certainty of vindication. 
the Messiah's certainty of vindication. In verse 15, the Messiah contrasts the desires of the wicked and His satisfaction in this life with His own. And what ultimately satisfies the Messiah is to be in the presence of God. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That's his contrast. And that's where you can see the the difference in desires between the wicked and the Messiah. The wicked are satisfied with the world. The Messiah is satisfied in God. And he is certain that he will see him and be in his presence. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is a verse that anticipates the vindication of the Messiah. His claims to be God's anointed King and His status as such will be justified. But we should also recognize that this vindication ultimately is coming through His resurrection. And we can see this especially if we think about the meaning of this last verse moving backwards. I think it's kind of helps us to understand kind of the imagery that's, that's going on here. First, we read at the very end of the verse, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And the word here for likeness throughout the Old Testament is used to refer to the physical form of something. The visible, physical form of something. For example, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, when Miriam and Aaron were opposing Moses and were speaking out against him, God vindicated Moses by distinguishing Moses and his prophetic office from all of the other prophets. He described the fact that he, he speaks to these other prophets in, in dreams and in visions and in riddles. But with Moses, it's different. He says that Moses had a unique access to God that not even even Aaron had. And, And God says here, He says, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. The likeness of the Lord. Now certainly we know from other passages that even with Moses, there were limitations to what he was able to see from God. But it's nevertheless true that as he spoke with God, he saw some kind of form. However veiled it may have been, he was looking at God. Or we could think of a negative example of this same word. For example, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, where Moses there says to the people of Israel that when God spoke to them from Sinai, they saw no form. And therefore, they were prohibited from ever fashioning any carved images, any forms in the likeness of a God they had not seen a form of. But here in the psalm, the Messiah says that He's going to be satisfied with God's form. Which means, of course, He's going to see Him. He's going to see Him in all of His glory. In fact, if you read the the ancient translation of this very text in the Greek, they translate it as glory. This is what His form is going to be. A glorious form. And the Messiah says, I'm going to see it. And I'm going to be satisfied in it. Moreover, He says that this will happen when He awakes. And here, he's not talking about just 
falling asleep like you do every night and then waking up as happens every single day. He's using the language of awakening to refer to the resurrection. It's similar to what we find, for example, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. When God promises salvation to Judah and He says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Or even as the Apostle Paul says in, in his epistle to the, the Ephesians when he's talking about the, the resurrection and the people of God singing, awake, O sleeper. The language of awakening here has to do with rising from the dead. This awakening in Psalm 17 is what results in the Messiah seeing and being satisfied with the form of God. And therefore, this awakening is an awakening from the dead and into the presence of God. Again, if he's just talking about going to sleep at night and then waking up in the morning, this makes no sense. You're just going to wake up every morning and, and see the form of God. That, that, that's not what happens, right? This is resurrection language. He is going to see and be in the presence of God. Which is then, which is what also leads us uh, to the beginning of verse 15. And what verse 15 uh, in the beginning is referring to. He says there, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. The Messiah is confident that in answer to his cries and prayers, God will save him from the hands of his enemies. But that salvation is, of course, not promised to come apart from great wounds. He's not looking for God to keep him out of affliction altogether. And clearly that's not the case because he's in the midst of it. He has enemies pursuing him, persecuting him. He's going through affliction. This is not a plea for God to spare him from any wounds or affliction altogether. But what he is hoping in is a salvation that comes miraculously Exodus-like through and out of that affliction. He knows that he will sleep. And he will sleep the sleep of death. But not even death will defeat him because he anticipates awakening into the presence of God and seeing His very form. Justice will be given to Him. Vindication will come to Him in accordance with His prayers and cries, but it will come when He rises to see the face of God. And friends, this is, this is the good news for us as well. The confidence that Christ had he also gives to us who trust in Him. He does not promise ever in any place in His Word that we will never be afflicted. That we will never have to go through battles where we are wounded and scarred and persecuted. But the promise of the Gospel is that we will be ultimately vindicated. Our faith in Christ will prove publicly and cosmically to be totally warranted. All of the doubts, all of the maligning, all of the slander, all of the enemies that the Christian church faces telling it to renounce your faith when she holds to it, and she holds to it to the very end. Even if she dies, she will be vindicated. God will do for her what He did for her head, Christ. 
Just like he, he rose him, caused him to rise from the dead, he will also cause the church to rise from the dead. And she will awake. She will rise from her grave and she will behold his glory. For like Christ, we too, if the Lord tarries, will sleep the sleep of death. But like Christ, we will be satisfied with the likeness of God. We are given this promise in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where John is speaking of the appearing of the Lord at His coming and at our resurrection. And he says that we know that when He appears, when Christ comes, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We will see His form and we will be satisfied with His likeness. This prayer here in the psalm that is a call for God to vindicate His righteous servant ultimately through a resurrection, friends, is the same prayer that even now today we can offer up to God when we are in the midst of our own spiritual battles, whether it be with our own sin or with the world, we too can cry out to God, vindicate me, O Lord. And we can say with the very end of the psalm, as for me, I will be satisfied with Your likeness. And just as that psalm was fulfilled by Christ in the days of Christ, so also will it be fulfilled in us who are united to Him and who have believed in Him. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, it is that day especially that we long for. As many of us have even been thinking this past week in light of loss and death, heaven is certainly a great hope that we have. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is far better than we have it even now. But even heaven itself is but a temporary moment. We long for that day to come when we, like Christ, are resurrected from the grave, body and soul united, transformed, and clothed with immortality and power. And when that great day comes, we will sing songs of taunting to the grave. We will sing to death, O oh, death, where is your sting? And we will sing this because in Your grace You have vindicated us as we have trusted in You. We are grateful, Lord, for the work that You have done in vindicating Your Son, Jesus, in causing Him to rise from the dead. And grateful that as we are united to Him, this same hope can be to us. And so we pray, Lord, that You would give us these eyes that long to be satisfied in Your likeness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.